Well, I have a cold, which means it must be winter. In fact, today is the first day of winter. It's hard to believe we're already here at the end of the year. It's a time to look back at what we got right, what we got done, and what we missed. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidra. Every year, going all the way back to 2014, I have gathered up conversations, interviews, recordings, documents of the year. If I travel, I try to find people to talk to when I'm home. I'm constantly putting together these episodes. Sometimes it's a musician putting out an album, a writer publishing a book, someone on tour. Other times it's just something I'm interested in, someone I was a fan of, or somebody I just discovered that I'm excited about. It's freeform. You know this. I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But now as I approach the end of the year, I'm saddled with a collection of conversations that went unreleased for no real reason. And the fact is, this has happened in other years, too. I'm sorry to tell you that there have probably been dozens of great talks that were not released simply because the stars just didn't align. And then after so much time had passed, it became difficult for me to share them. But the point is that this year, before I let that happen again, I decided to share excerpts from a handful of conversations that didn't come out. I'm calling it The Ones That Got Away 2022 Holiday Edition. Our adventure begins in a Madrid hotel room in June. I'm sitting with the brilliant saxophone player Bill McHenry. Bill and I were performing together that week with my dad in Madrid. And, uh, hey, uh, Hector, can we hear some Bill McHenry, please? Yes, okay. That's Hector Coulon, my engineer. Thank you, Hector. Yes. This is Bill's tune, Ben Entrada La Nit, from his album of the same name from 2018. I'm such a fan of Bill McHenry's, both as a musician and a person. He's totally unique, totally inspiring, a complete one of a kind. He grew up in Maine, lived in New York for years before ultimately moving to Spain. He lives outside of Barcelona today. In fact, he was featured in a piece by the writer Ashley Kahn that was published by WBGO.org earlier this year called The New Jazz Emigres, about American musicians living abroad. Speaking of WBGO, don't forget that the third story is made in collaboration with WBGO Studios. You can visit wbgo.org studios to check out all their award-winning content. I also want to take a moment to remind you that these episodes also appear on allaboutjazz.com. And if you haven't spent any time there, you should absolutely do so immediately because it's an incredible resource and they are doing brilliant work. And finally, as a reminder, third-story.com is the place to find the full archive, hundreds of conversations like these. Consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends, share on the socials, let people know if you enjoy this. And finally, patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast is the place to put your money where my mouth is. So here's me and Bill McHenry talking about his early development, his analysis of Charlie Parker melodies, and more. I started learning to play saxophone. Uh, I was kind of self-taught in the beginning, but my mother was my music teacher. Wow. I mean, I went to a band for a month or two. We rented a saxophone. We had the book, showed the fingerings and so on. Of course, I'm getting a condensed version of the story. But after a few months of that, you know, the kids were playing, I don't know, whatever, like, you know, fifth grade band music. And my mother was a, a Suzuki piano teacher. Uh-huh. And she taught 30 students a week in our home uh-huh. and uh, had group lessons there and recitals. And my little sister was one of her students. And but you didn't study Suzuki piano? No, I wasn't allowed to play the piano in our home. Why not? Because <laughs> uh, I was told I didn't have a good touch. 
So she was really serious. She was discerning. <laughs> she was looking for some kind of thing. And my you sister did not... had it, and I didn't. I, I, yeah, so I would play it when no one was around. I'd go over to the piano. There were two pianos in the house that I wasn't allowed to play. You think you were even more drawn to it, considering it was forbidden? It sounds harsh. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't happy about it. I remember when I was told that. Yeah. But I also, you know, there was other things that I wasn't good at either. But, but you maybe later on my own, I, d I wanted to, they offered the instruments in the school and I wanted to play the saxophone. And yeah. basically I persuaded my family to let me try the saxophone and rent it from the place. We got the book out and saw the fingerings. I played the instrument and I was able to produce a sound on it yeah. that they thought was decent. You know, they're, you know, my father told me he was very, he was an architect, but he was like, oh boy, Little Billy honking away on the saxophone, and I already got 30 Suzuki students in the house a week. He was working out of the home. But then he heard me play, and the sound wasn't completely different than the sound I have today. Mm. I've heard, you know, like a cassette tape of me when I was like maybe two years after that. It wasn't that different. You recognize yourself. You could, I think you could recognize me. Well, I mean, one of the interesting things, and I didn't know that your mother was a music teacher and, you know, all of that, but. It, you know. It, oh yeah. Oh, it, let me yeah. say something about that. Yeah. So the reason why it was different for me. Yeah. Is because she after after the a week. Oh yeah. Surprised me and came home with a book of classical pieces, melodies. Yeah. Adapted to the alto saxophone uh -huh. with piano accompaniment. So the first things that I ever learned how to play on my instrument were already beautiful. Mm -hmm. Pavan for a Dead Princess, Gymnopedes by Satie, you know, simple preludes by you know, Bach, and you know, really simple, beautiful little melodies, you know, uh, Beethoven, and yeah. you, know, you know, just pretty little things. Yeah. For at least, you know, like waltzes. Everything I learned was simple. Whole notes and half notes, quarter notes sometimes. But every melody was beautiful. Yeah. And that's what, and I learned sharps and flats in that context, yeah. you know, those kind yeah. of things. So I was a band dropout, but I was learning, you know, just with my mom. And then um, after a few years, she found um, a, a private teacher for me, a guy named David Dempsey, who uh, later, now he runs the uh, program at, uh, uh, what's the school in New Jersey? Um, Patterson. He runs a jazz program there. But at that time, he was a young guy teaching at University of Maine in Augusta. And he came up to Orono, where we were living at that time, once a week. And my mom somehow convinced him to give me an audition to be his student. And, uh, you know, I'd been just learning with her. And we yeah. played a piece, one of the pieces that I'd prepared after this couple of years. And, and he accepted me as a student. I, you know, that gave me a huge advantage. So that's the first time I wanted to get to there because that's where... He, I first heard of Charlie Parker. Uh -huh. So all I knew about Charlie, he got, he got me to get a Charlie Parker Omnibook, and he made me a cassette tape with the solos for Now's the Time and Confirmation and Anthropology, mm -hmm. the live one with Roy Haynes. Mm -hmm. So I heard that because of him when I was 12 years old. Yeah. And he gave me the Now's the Time solo and gave me a year to learn <laughs> it. You know, four bars a week was plenty. And that there's one little sixteenth note passage in there that every saxophone player knows. And that was like a goal for like, oh yeah, maybe when you're 13, you know. But I would kind of try it yeah. sometimes. Anyway, I just had forever to learn it. So that that kind of richness in melody, I didn't even imagine ever being able to play 
that kind of music. There's the thing, you know, my dad interviewed Red Rodney years ago and Red said to Ben that, you know, they would sometimes in the band, they would ask Bird, what did he play? And he always said B flat seven. He'd just say his B flat seven. Just like I always felt, Bird didn't really play with the knowledge of chord changes. His instinct was so great and they were, his ear was so great and his ability on his horn was so great that he really didn't have to know, but I caught him a couple times. I asked him, where does this bridge go to? Like in Song Is You. And he said, B flat seventh. And I looked at him like, what? And I saw Al Haig was laughing. I thought, wait a minute, is he putting me on or not? It happened two or three more times on different tunes. And it was always B flat seventh. You know, it might have been F sharp minor seventh or something. And I said, uh-oh, maybe he doesn't know. I can't tell you to this day, but I always had my suspicion that Bird had very little knowledge of chord changes, formally. I uh, hesitate to speculate. Yeah, what he was thinking, yeah. But I'll tell you, but I am still obsessed with Charlie Parker. Yeah. I have all, every Charlie Parker blues melody written out. Uh-huh. Every single one, there's 29 of them. And what do you see consistent? To me, it's Da Vinci them. Code. Yeah. It's Da Vinci Code for his music. Yeah. It's his message of this is like, I wrote this. Yeah. So it gives you some hints. I would take like every bird blues that he wrote in C yeah. and compare them, for example. And they're very, very different. Mm. There's some of them, like perhaps, that are very C major scale. <laughs> That's the first thing that's a little different. It's an augmented yeah. sound. But until then, it's C major. Now you might get something else like Sh- uh, Cheryl, uh-huh. and that plays all 12 notes by the time you get to like bar two. The one thing you rarely see with Charlie Parker melodies is a dominant seventh Interesting. in the blues until you get to bar three, beat four and a half. It's there like 13 times. So why? Yeah. Well, why the why there I'll speculate. The why is because that becomes the minor third of the two that leads to the eventual four chord. So he saves up and shows you that note for the very first time when it's about to push to the four. The other possible why is that it's similar to Cherokee that way, Mm. where Cherokee is a major seven Mm -hmm. for two bars, and then on bar three, it starts to lead to the four. Maybe he liked something on Cherokee so much that he liked playing that major seven on bar one of the blues. He does major seven a lot. He does major six a lot. Sometimes he doesn't play any seventh. I I feel like there's a a tune of his that I saw recently that I was like, oh, I forgot that one. Oh, yeah. Billy's Bounce Mm -hmm. is the exception. But it's very subtle. And most people don't even play it when they play the melody. They play Yeah. But it, actually there's a dominant seventh in there that's kind of ghosted.
I don't hear anybody play that yeah. ever. But that's what it is. That's the only exception that I know about. So I just want to back up. Yeah, and say, yeah, yeah, please. You're growing up in Maine. Yeah, that's which right. Which in and of itself is a, a totally kind of isolated, isolating place to completely be. Completely isolated. But you have access. I have to access this great because teacher. of this one teacher and these cassette tapes and the Charlie Parker Omnibook. And are you all in in high school? I mean, by the time you get to high school, are you like devoted? Do you want to be a musician at this point, or you're, this is what by the you time think I about? get to high school? Well, no, I, I was still into math. Yeah, I had been kind of gotten into early computer programming. Yeah. Like programming in basic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and you know, this we're talking like nineteen eighty five. Yeah. I actually wrote an article for Color Computer magazine, which was a magazine that Radio Shack put out about the T R S eighty. Yeah. Because um uh Craig Dickerson, my math teacher, uh-huh. wrote for them. And me and this other guy, Sven Bonnickson, were these nerdy kids You're who good could names. programming. Sven Bonnickson. Yeah. Name. Yeah, he sounds like he programs, right? <laughs> he was better at it than me, he, and his parents were very encouraging. Yeah. My parents thought the computers were spooky. Oh, really? <laughs> like, yeah. They're, they're, I think we've learned that my parents are a little dumb from this. For a, you know, for a piano teacher and an architect, they're a little thick. They didn't think I had a good touch. They didn't want me to play the computer. Man, I could have been a millionaire <laughs> pianist at this point, you know? But whatever, things are fine. And then we would be, we wouldn't have this podcast. Yeah, that's so right. So maybe it's better for humanity, you know. Well, that's optimistic <laughs> about the podcast, but I'll take it. You had this great teacher, and you're into math, though. I think you, you kind of yeah. glossed over the idea that on the way into computing, you were into math, which I think I is... was good at it. I had aptitude. I liked whatever I was good at. And, and yeah. I think that that had a lot to do with me getting into music. I loved music, yeah. but I didn't think it was like me in music. Yeah. I just loved it for myself. Like I listened to it on my little Radio Shack cassette player with my earphones before I went to bed. Yeah. I loved it. I appreciate you saying that you liked what you were good at. I did, yeah. And so I got a different reaction socially yeah. for what I did with music. Now, I mean, I did connect with it, though, was, you know, per, on a personal level. That connected me with my mother, which was, yes. I didn't, you know, at that time I had, had a typical grouchy little boy, you yeah. know, you know, relationship. You know, I was like the noisy little boy. She was a piano teacher. You know, I didn't relate to anything with her. But after that, I, re- you know, I really. You had this shared thing. Oh, big time. Uh, big time. That was the first musician I played with. Yeah. It was, that was my first mentorship. Yes. Playing with somebody older who hooked it up for yeah. me to sound good. Yeah, yeah. You know, which led me to like, you know, things like Paul Motion. Yeah. You know? Hey, Hector, can we hear some Brazilian girls' music, please? Yes. Just down the road from that hotel in Madrid, keyboard player, producer, and founding member of the band Brazilian Girls, Didi Gutmann has his studio. Didi was born and raised in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and started playing professionally there before he moved to the United States. First to Boston to go to Berklee College of Music, and then to New York, where he worked with the likes of CNC Music Factory, Michelle and Ocello, Lauren Hill, Grace Jones, and John Legend. He worked a lot with Bebel Gilberto as her musical director and sometimes producer. And eventually he became entrenched in the scene at New Blue in the East Village. That's the scene that led to the formation of his group, Brazilian Girls. I was such a fan of that group, which you'll hear me tell him as we begin to talk. Today, Didi lives in Madrid and is one of the most successful producers in Spain. His recent work with the Argentine-Spanish singer Nati Peluso has helped to cement that for him. Here's me and Didi talking it down in June. Didi Gutmann. Hello. Did I say it right? Yes, perfect. When I lived in Madison, Wisconsin, 
I remember receiving the first Brazilian Girls record. I remember there were a few records that came out over the course of maybe two or three years that made me understand I needed to leave Wisconsin and move to New York. <laughs> and the Brazilian Girls record at the beginning of 2005 was maybe the last one that it was like, okay, you got to go. And I moved in April of 2005 because I wanted to go wherever that was coming from. Right. You know, I've really been looking forward to just meeting you, I think, ever since then. Wow. Well, nice meeting you. What I want to know, though, is what happened that got you there. Forgive me for saying this. I think you're in your 50s, which yes. means you grew up. I forgive in... you. Thank you. I mean, Argentina, when you were growing up, yeah. was in a going through a difficult period and then a period of massive transition. Yeah, and I mean, I guess you refer to the whole political situation yes. with the military coup and yeah. governments and all that, all, all what implies that with yes. the missing people and tortures. And I was too young to be conscious of it yeah. while it was happening. I didn't suffer from it directly. Do you think that the popular music and culture around you when you were a teenager was in any way influenced by the political conditions that had For sure, it? for sure, for sure, because there was a big explosion of freedom afterwards, and these things always influence yes. art and music. Yes. And like being repressed also brings out a need of expression. Yes. I was lucky to be living my teenage years on a period of really uh, fertile artistic expression. Yes. When I went to Argentina, I was curious to see the way the Argentinian musicians had absorbed rock and roll. And in fact, I mean, uh, not only I think is rock en español most active in Argentina from anywhere else in South America and Latin America, but also, like you, Argentina ultimately exported producers and songwriters all over the world. And artists. And artists who ended up contributing to what we think of as sort of Latin rock music and Latin popular music. Yeah, Argentina was kind of like a pioneer in terms of like at the end of the 60s, the artists and the bands embraced uh, Spanish as a language of expression and, and therefore, yeah, that, that thing called rock nacional. Yeah was born a lot of it was like copies of yes. what was going on at the time but some really singular and unique artists came out like Luis Alberto Spinetta and Charlie Garcia And these guys are like unique as in like, I mean, the whole worldwide scene, yes. not just Argentina. And that was my thing. I was, I grew up on that. Yes. I grew up on, on Argentinian rock. That yes. was my biggest influence musically growing yes. up. You know, the scene must just be small enough in Argentina that if you're talented and motivated, you get to play yeah. pretty quickly with the 
the names because I see that you played with Salinas and with Espineta and yeah. with a lot of the people that were influential at that time exactly. and young. Exactly, that's correct. And I got in the scene pretty quickly. I grew up on rock music yeah. and when I was growing up, the music from Argentina was not cool, uh -huh. you know, for us. We saw it like as older people yeah. music, you know, tango and yeah. uh, folklore. Yes. And so I was like completely like, nah, this is, I don't like this. No. But, but but when I left Argentina, I started appreciating it. It's typical. It's it, typical. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very typical. <laughs> <laughs> and I really got into being a lover yes. of the music that I was in denial when I grew up. So tell me then what you found now you're in New York in the 90s, you're producing yeah. records. And that's a really fertile and creative time in New York, right? Yeah. Before I moved to New York, I, I remember a friend... An old childhood friend, I was visiting New York from Madison, and he said, hey, man, my saxophone teacher is opening this bar. <laughs> Let's right. go check it out. You know, And I went in and met Ilhan and saw New Blue, I, maybe before it was even open officially or whatever, and it was like there was nobody there. You know, It was just like this little funky, cool place, and he was super cool. Same thing. Same thing. I was a party at the Bells, yeah. and Ilhan, I'm having a conversation with him. It's like, I'm opening a bar. He was living upstairs. Yes. He, he still lives upstairs. I'm opening a bar and it's like, I want a gig. Huh. Yeah, I want a like, um, I want a residency. Yes. And so I went to see it before it opened. Yeah. It's just like, and I was like, okay, you can take Sundays. Hmm. I was big deal in Brazilian girls history because that's that's where we became a band. At New Blue on Sundays. At New Blue on Sundays, yeah, and it ended up being a great night because it's like. Um, and we because we played late. Yeah, very late. We played late. like from one to four. I could something. never come. I don't stay up that late, man. <laughs> now I'm. I don't stay up that late. But at that time, yes. The crowd was like waitresses and yeah. people from like the restaurant business yes. that like after work will yeah. come and they don't have to wake up at mon on Monday morning. Yeah. So it was like a really cute crowd. Yeah. And that helped a lot yeah. too because when there's a cute cute crowd, yeah. there's a crowd. Yes. So how did it develop? Was it originally kind of just freeform jamming? Were there songs? What were there? I mean, it wasn't freeform because I didn't want it to be that. But yeah. what what happened is, like, I had a sort of like a DJ gig there, yeah. but I was playing my own music. Mm -hmm. And the way I was doing it is I'll bring my laptop with my keyboard and I had my recent, mm -hmm. my little you know, beats yep. that I made. But then there was all these instruments floating around. And I started saying, uh, well, why don't you sit in, you know, uh -huh. with me? And so Sabina was like, why don't you sing a tune? And, and, and how did you know Sabina? We were in a relationship. Uh, yeah. She was my girlfriend yes. at that time. And I met her when she came to New York. So you started a band with your girlfriend, basically. Basically, yeah. I mean, at the beginning, it wasn't a band. It was a jam. And so Sabina had her project. She she was a solo artist. Uh -huh. And we were always trying to do stuff together. And, you know, I was helping her with her stuff. I did mine. She did hers and stuff. Well, like, she would sing a tune or two. And then, and then Jesse and Aaron were roommates. They came together. They were going together everywhere. And they sat in. And then something happened, you know, it started being good. And I, I will give you some, like, little, no, not even charts, but, like, say, A section, B section, we'll go from A minor to yeah. D minor, just to say. Yeah. Just that, just so it's not, like, one chord only yeah. two, type jam. Two chords. Well, two, two chords. chords yeah. That's just a huge yeah. difference yeah. right there. Ooh, three chords. <laughs> yeah. Wow, you guys, uh, how long have you been together, you know? Uh, <laughs> Uh, sometimes we clicked. Yeah. And from there on, 
we were like, uh, no, 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 this is not an open jam. Uh, 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 no Nobody guitar, else, no yeah. guitar. It's like putting also that limitation of not not having a guitar in the band because style is being formed from from Limitation. limitations. And so I saw that clearly, and Sabina saw it clearly too. And I was like, yes, but no. So at one point we had these jams that were developing. The night started becoming like a hot night yes. in town. And Hector Castillo, whom I knew, is a incredible engineer, yeah. producer, he was uh, the guy at um, Looking Glass, uh -huh. the Philip Glass's studio. Yes. And one night he came to Nublu and he said like, listen guys, I'm doing this mix for a group, but I'm only using half of the mixing board. So why don't you just sneak in at night and, and we'll, we'll do and something. And use the other half and of we the do, mixing we board. Do, we use the other half of the mixing board and have fun. Yeah. And so we went with those jams that we were playing at Nublu and we jammed and we jammed, you know? And then we started editing those jams yeah. and that became a four song EP, uh -huh. which included Me Gusta Cuando Callas, yeah. included Long, and I think it had Om, that's yes. got like that tango sample. Yes. And so we were just like selling those EPs. And so like what, what happened? We, I think it was very new and contemporary at that time to work out a composition by editing in Pro Tools. That mm -hmm. was like Innovative. a new form yeah. of innovating. Yeah. Exactly. And so because we took like the best parts yeah. of like, oh, th there are like really nice 64 bars yeah. where we got into a really nice pocket yeah. here. You can tell that it's all edited, you yeah. know? If you listen, you, yeah. it's, it's obvious because the changes are, like, drastic, yeah. you know? And so that's how we did it. I think at that time, that's that's kind of a charm of that first record is that it was done that way, yes. you know? And it was fresh at that moment. Yes. Basically, I can say that our style and our compositions were done by jamming at Nublu, you yeah. know? Were done in the spot. Yeah. That EP got into the hands of Jason Orlane, who mm. was uh, A&R at Verve. Yes. And, we, and, Dahlia. and Dahlia, and we started getting their interest, and they started showing up to the gigs, and that's when this conversation started with them. We went back with Hector, yeah. now paid by the company, yes. to Looking Glass, and did like some more songs, blah, blah, blah. And so like with like three or four of those kinds of sessions, we ended up having our first album. I think like jazz wasn't selling as usual, yeah. and Verve had those very remixed yes, series that's right. and they did very well and and, we, and the jazz factor in terms of that like we did improvise a lot yes. we did jam i wouldn't call it i don't know if it's jazz but we had like yeah. I mean, we were playing yes so it made sense there comes a moment when you're in a band you're the guy from the band yeah you know and the band has an identity and it brings all this kind of cachet with it and all of this pseudo celebrity almost you know there was right. a moment when you guys were like kind of famous in new york legends legend <laughs> legends in, your, in the making legends in your minds that brings a certain amount of you know drama and all that oh, shit don't tell me about it <laughs> <laughs> it did actually it did 
Yes. And you're in a relationship with the singer, yeah, which you can and only the, and, go and the one relationship way. went sour. <laughs> at what point? It was after the second record. Any relationship can go sour yeah. at any time. Like in this case was the lack of limits. Yeah. Like what's what, you know? Yeah. It ended up being like all our conversations were about the band. Yeah. You know, and about the business yeah. and about so it's weird. We're more bandmates than anything else. After this, I didn't want it to yeah. be with another yeah. musician, you know? Yeah. I mean if you fall in love, you fall in love, of what course. you can do. But I'm happy not being yeah. in a relationship with a musician. Yes. You have access to a broader yes. you know, aspects of life. As you say, so much creativity is informed by limitation, but also you have the personal limitation of there's four people in this band, and if one of them is going through something, whatever it is, it's going to impact the rest of the band. Yeah, and the thing is also like, what happens with a lot of bands, I think it's like, why they happen is because a bunch of people are in the same page yeah. at a certain time and yes. moment, and they desire similar things. Yes. But that changes yeah. over time. A lot of bands maintain because they, ha they have something going on that yeah. they don't want to lose, yeah. and they manage to work out their differences because either the business is really good or for whatever reason, or because they want to keep or the artistic material is the same but we definitely grown into wanting different things yes. you know and yeah. so it's very it gets very difficult when that happens you know yes more so than the dramas it's just like it's very hard to get it going at, at that point you was know? the success difficult to i think respond it, to i think it made us some of us more than others uh -huh. very infantile and it just went a little bit off, out of control, whatever success was, because it wasn't a huge success, right. whatever moderate success. But. but what about creatively, like responding to the first record, which was born out of a handful of jams. Now yeah. here you are, people go, what's the next Brazilian Cre Creatively too, you know, I think like it had a big impact. Yeah, it was hard to maintain the focus. Yes. Hector, play the John Dryden record. Okay, John Dryden. Back in New York in the spring, I talked to another piano player, composer, producer kind of guy who spent a lot of his time in New York straddling various scenes, John Dryden. John has been living in Northern California in recent years. That's where he grew up and he moved back there to look after his parents. But I first met him when he lived in New York and he was back in town to record a trio record produced by the singer-songwriter Jesse Harris and featuring Chris Lightcap on bass and Dan Reeser on drums. This is the opening track from that record. Before he moved back to California, John had been working with Jesse Harris, Nora Jones, and Richard Julian. I think of that as the trifecta of the Lower East Side jazz singer-songwriter scene of the early aughts. I actually ended up running into John a handful of times this year because he's kind of been walkabout, spending time in Brooklyn and Paris, too. But here's me and John in New York last spring. My grandmother was a medium, and hmm. I feel like whether anybody believes it or not, there's some, we have connections to the other side, especially musicians. Wow, okay, great. <laughs> uh, your grandmother was a medium. Yeah. What does that mean? So I never met her. She yeah. was my, my father's a musician. My uh -huh. grandmother, uh, Petra Jones was her maiden name, uh -huh. came from Wales. Uh -huh. And apparently, uh, according to my dad, she would hold a, basically do a seance uh, in a church in Niagara Falls in the 30s and 40s. People would bring yeah. in items of clothing or things from their, you know, yeah. loved dead ones, 
and she would go into a trance and contact those people and give messages back to the people on Earth. And my dad said she quit doing it when she wasn't sure of where the power was coming from. Hmm. So I don't feel like I have any sort of real psychic abilities other than musicianship, but uh, uh, I think there is something there. Well, that's the second sort of piece of the statement that you Mm -hmm. made, right? That especially musicians have maybe more access or readily available access to the other side. Totally. I mean, I think there are a lot of ways to uh, think about that, but how do you think about that? We have the best job in the universe because we connect to the universe for a living. We are in touch with something that's far beyond anybody's imaginations or beyond words. And when we have these magical musical moments, there is nothing better. And sometimes I feel sorry for people who can't experience what we are able to experience because mm. it is magic and we are magicians. Do you find that you're able to get there alone or does it happen in communication with other musicians? Oh, that's a great question. I feel if you can't get there alone, especially as a piano player, you're probably not channeling the right thing. So I am able to get there alone, but there is that magic you get with playing with people, especially ones who are better than you. Yeah. And um, I've been very lucky to have played with many people who are better than me, as everybody should, you know. Did you feel some kind of responsibility to try to New Yorkify the scene when you went to California? You know, I did. I mean, I'm in Santa Cruz, which is yeah. a beautiful small town. That's yeah. where I grew up. Yeah. But it's just far away enough from San Francisco and L.A. to feel a little more isolated. So my late friend Kurt uh, Stockdale, who was this incredible sax tenor player, and he lived here in New York for years, we both moved there at the same time. And then we started doing gigs in Santa Cruz, and our goal was to just make the music scene better Yeah, and bringing a New York thing to it. And not everybody was on board. Sure. It was just too much for some people. Yeah. Not like we were, you know, God's gift to Santa Cruz jazz, but it was, you know, we were trying to like, you know, raise the level and it helped. And then uh, once he left us, it was, uh, it definitely felt like a huge hole. I mean, everybody dies, everybody loses, but there's been a, just a string of people taken too young, in my opinion, and friends of mine who were connected to the universe. Yeah, it's just a little tougher when they go. I'm sure, man. You know, know, and the thing about trying to bring some of the level that you experienced here and were a part of here to wherever you go. I mean, I, you know, I'm from Madison, from Wisconsin. It's another small town. Right. Small, but university town with good level, you know, cosmopolitan city. And you had the funky drummer. We had the funky drummer. But, you know, I knew some musicians who had spent time in New York and came back to Madison and would try to motivate and mm-hmm. try to I mean even just jam session etiquette in terms of like learn more tunes we need to be playing more tunes locally like the entire repertoire of the scene needs to expand things like that exactly that, that nobody was kicking our ass to think about mm-hmm. um, and it was met with a certain amount of resistance because I think when life is a little easier that you just don't have as you say living hand to mouth you know definitely has its disadvantages <laughs> but it makes you stronger yeah I just know New Yorkers are some of the strongest people in the world because of the daily grind of it. It's the most beautiful thing and the most brutal thing in many ways. Not most brutal worldwide, but it is, you know, and I can always tell someone, especially musicians who have lived here, that not like they have this big, you know, attitude and talk funny, but because there's just a certain strength, a rhythmic sense here that... 
I don't find as much elsewhere. It's also a certain, it's not quite confidence, but, or a swagger. Yeah. But there is just a vibe, and I believe anybody who's, who really gives a shit about their life and wants to do something yeah. should live in New York for at least a year. And so what led you away? What, what sent you back to California? Well, let's see. Um, so I'd lost my rent-stabilized place on 12th Street, which was like a divorce in Brooklyn. And yes. um, that you know, that was really difficult. Th- that is what would send me away from New York if I lost this place. Yeah, so I, I felt like I was the king of 12th Street. And as soon as I had to move just two neighborhoods away, I felt isolated and alone. And the recession hit. I lost a bunch of just gigs stopped. And then my dad got really sick. So New York just told me, okay, time to get out. And your dad needs you. So I moved home and uh, took care of my dad the last five years of his life. And, you know, that was a different kind of brutal than New York, but kind of just as stressful. What was it like? His story is a very long story, but he had an amoeba in his brain. And he was the only person to ever survive it. It's a really strange kind of miracle story. So he was supposed to die several times and told he couldn't walk. And then he walked into the doctor's office a year later. And, you know, it's like, hey. What, do, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. Don't, I don't even know, really understand what that means to have an amoeba in your brain. Nobody does. Uh, I had no idea it could happen. Yeah. So we all have like some sort of, you know, amoebas in our bloodstream or guts or whatever. Yeah. But this penetrated the blood-brain barrier, Mm. which it's not supposed to do, and caused an encephalitis kind of thing. So it looked like he had a stroke. And when I saw him a month after it happened, he was in the ICU and basically comatose. He regained everything, and he lived another 18 years. Mm. And he was a trumpet player, so he got his chops back, and I was taking him to jams and gigs and so it was pretty inspiring but he had dementia after that after that and he lived uh, with a dementia for 18 years the dementia was more in the last four or five but it was starting to creep in it was the five years that you yeah most of of the years i was there taking care of him and if he fell i had to pick him up and you know he was a great dad and he was a musician and he introduced me to stravinsky when i was five so Stravinsky is comfort music, mm-hmm. and Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, Haydn. But then when I got into jazz, when I was about thirteen, he said, "Well, you better listen to some Clifford Brown." And was and, he a jazz? He was a jazz. He was a jazz, uh, not a bebop, more of an old school, you know, like Satchmo, Bix kind of guy. But he played you the classical music first. Yeah. So he was an elementary school music teacher in Santa Cruz for thirty years, and gigging on the weekends. Yeah. So he taught me how to be like. I'd go on wedding gigs with him and yeah. see how it worked. And that's an education I think not enough people really get. I would watch how the band leader would read the room yeah. and, okay, we should play this now. Yeah. I don't. It seems like a lot of people just aren't as clued into that. How to make a set list, it's just like a CD order. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like a baseball lineup. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to keep people's attention. Yeah. And we get so involved in the music that we forget there's an audience mm-hmm. that is as important i used to be like oh no man it's all about the music and you know screw them if they don't like it and i'm still doing myself but i'm drawing from the audience more with my Mm -hmm. energy and if you're not like it's not like i'm trying to play to hey look at this i think you'll like this it is more of the feeling their energy and giving it back 
and that is performing and entertaining, but you can do that without sacrificing musical and artistic integrity. I'm a professor of jazz studies at San Jose State and yeah. Santa Clara University yeah. now. Um, somehow they let me in. <laughs> and uh, it's so amazing to work with these young people who are really gifted yeah. and they're open to everything. Yeah. What you don't know when you're first learning music is you hear something yeah. and it's brand new. Yes. And you have no context of where it comes from. That's right. I teach a jazz piano class and I start with Scott Joplin. Yeah. And I go chronologically. Yeah. So that we trace this whole heritage. You know, you can't say like, oh, we love this brand new thing yeah. without knowing where it comes from. Yeah. I mean, that's a major class to teach. To start with Scott Joplin, where, where do you land? Yeah, I barely get into the 21st century. Yeah. I just feel like if you're going to put a piece of a record on a pedestal, there are very few that you can put on within a year of them coming out. I think mm. they need you need seven years to see if it has a shelf life. That's your rule? That's my, yeah. that's my rule, and in a lot of this stuff, I give it even more. Yeah, There's so much more product out yeah. there, and it's impossible to keep up. Sometimes I feel like we've reached the end of history as we knew it, at least sort of linear history. This begat, this begat, mm. that, because it's all so diffuse now. Oh, uh, yeah. Today, there are so many strands and streams at the same time. Totally. I, I play with Nora and Jesse Harris, yeah. and I'm like, and Richard Julian, yeah. what do you call that music? Yeah. I just call it music and yes. great songs. And they're amazing, gifted singers and songwriters. Yes. But there's no term for it. I kind of like that. On a crisp October night, I found myself standing at the bar of the Sunside Jazz Club in Paris, listening to the great pianist Dan Tepfer playing. Dan was born and raised in Paris, but his parents were American. Now he lives in New York, and he's recorded and performed with some of the great practitioners of both jazz and classical music, from Lee Konitz to Renee Fleming. Honestly, if I start talking in detail about Dan, it'll go on for too long because he's extremely broad and his work combines elements of improvisation and also computer science. He's a composer, he's a performer. His work is beautiful and provocative. Anyway, I spoke to him briefly before his show about the differences between living, working, and creating in Europe and the United States. We as Americans often talk about, oh, France, the scene, the, the social services, the way musicians are treated, the arts in general. But I think you have a particular familiarity with this question. I mean, how do you view the, I don't know, I guess for starters, the differences between what it is to be a jazz musician or a performing musician in France and, and in Paris in particular and, and in New York? You know, to, to me, the biggest difference is simply that when you live in New York as a jazz musician, you're kind of automatically operating on the world stage just by the virtue of the fact that I live in New York and that I've played with some of the great New Yorker musicians who happen to be some of the great musicians of the history of jazz because that's where the center is. I kind of have the opportunity to play all over the world, you know, in Asia or uh, in Latin America or in Australia, uh, certainly all over Europe, in a way that I think if you make your name, even if in a, in a big way in Paris, you don't have the same access to. So that's certainly one of the privileges of operating as a musician, as a jazz musician in New York. It's something that kind of amazes me, actually. But in some ways, it makes a little bit of sense because New York still has that, that gravity where it attracts 
some of the very best and brightest and most motivated musicians from all over the world. They, many of them, even if they don't end up living there, uh, end up spending some time there. And so it's just, it's just a center and it has that, that, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere kind of feeling to it, which is not to diminish the Paris scene at all, because it's amazing the quality of music that's getting made here and the, um, the inventiveness of it. I think it's fantastic. But that's maybe the biggest difference I would say is, is Paris, the scene remains more local and New York is, is really, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's the world, it's the world stage kind of concentrated into one city. I sometimes think of New York as the capital of jazz and Paris as the capital of world music in a way. Like it's a very international, there's a much wider range I feel of music here. You do have a much more global view, I think, in Paris in some ways of what music is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you, you, you're certainly, you're surrounded by the greatest classical music, for one thing. I mean, you know, maybe Berlin is the center of the world for classical music, but it's right there. Uh, London is an incredible scene as well, and Paris is nothing to cough at either. Uh, and then you have this amazing influence from all the North African and Sub-Saharan uh, musicians. Many of, again, the most motivated and talented end up in Paris and it's just an incredible scene for that music so yeah for world music it's amazing I think you're right like stylistically Paris is probably much broader there might even be a more of like an electronic music scene than there is in New York I, I'm not exactly sure if I can compare that exactly but it's certainly wider just maybe less you know it just doesn't have the same depth and history for jazz that New York has do you feel that the nature of your connection in Paris leads you to do different kinds of projects here from the ones that you do, would do in New York, or is it all kind of the same for you? I mean, is there a slightly different impulse here for you to do slightly different kinds of work? You know, honestly, I think from my perspective, not so much. That question reminds me a little bit of an observation that's been made many times by friends of mine when they hear me switch between English and French, which, which I both speak natively. And often they'll be a little surprised if they've never heard me speak the other language. And they'll feel like, whoa, man, you have like a totally different personality in that other language. And I just don't feel that at all. It feels to me like I'm completely the same person. And, and probably the means of expression is different. Of course, the language is different and there's a different kind of culture around each one of those languages and since I know both of those cultures there's probably a difference in vibe but underneath it all like if you're separating form from content the the content of who I am and the kinds of things that I'm trying to say is the same and so maybe there's something similar going on there do you think that there is any comparison to be made between that example and the example of playing jazz and classical those are also two different languages ultimately and you speak both of those is there some aspect of that also of code switching in, in the music yeah i think that's a great comparison and okay so so let, let's backtrack here for a second i grew up completely bilingual right so like at a very young age i was exposed to both english and french in a, at a in a very regular way so at a very young age i had to recognize as all bilingual kids do that words are not the signified words are only the signifier and not the signified, okay? So if you're talking about a chair, you have this word chair, but kids who learn one language at first 
for a very long time, they understand the word to be the thing, right? Chair is, is the chair. But if you grow up with both chaise and chair pointing at the signified, which is this abstract concept, um, you understand that they're, they're separate from the thing they're pointing to. And apparently there have been studies that show that kids who, who grow up bilingual have a much earlier sense of abstraction because of that. And I think the corollary for me in music is my mom was an opera singer. So I grew up surrounded by classical music and, and opera. I mean, I was literally in her womb for nine months while she was singing in the Paris Opera most nights. But also my grandfather was a jazz pianist. And so I was surrounded by that also from a very young age. And being a close witness of both those languages, shall we say, or certainly different approaches to music and also, you know, practicing them as, as, as well as I could from, from a young age, I think has had the same effect on me where what I'm really interested in is what's behind the style. And it's really like, what is music as opposed to, you know, what is jazz or what is classical or, you know, these things that are ultimately kind of these trivial boxes. It's really what is music. And that's what's interesting to me about the code switching. It's also what's interesting to me about switching between English and French or other languages, it's like it, it, it maybe teaches you something every time about who you really are or what being a human is as opposed to being Frenchman or an American. At some point in the last couple of years, I started noticing that there was this great graphic designer who was doing work for some of my favorite projects and artists. I followed him on Instagram, B-Side Graphic, it was called. And I started to geek out about all the incredible designs that this person did. They were obviously inspired by old Blue Note covers, but there was something kind of modern and distressed about them too. I might call the aesthetic mid-century postmodern. And it was just so many great artists that were being represented by this designer. Dave King, Emmett Cohen, Aaron Parks, Nate Smith, Melissa Aldana, Kurt Elling, Ben Wendell, Mark Juliana, Michael Lenhart, Samara Joy, George Colligan, Makai McRaven, Bob Reynolds. I mean, if you know me at all, then you know that I love all these artists because I talk to all of them on this podcast. Anyway, so many incredible people were using this B-side designer, but the weird thing was that among them, I was also noticing names like Devin Dropka and Tony Barba, John Christensen, Johannes Wallman, and Anthony Deutsch, all brilliant musicians who are mostly on the scene in Wisconsin. And I know this because I'm from Wisconsin originally too, which you probably also know if you listen to this podcast, and I go back there once or twice a year to stay connected. So I was thinking, what is going on with this designer? Who is this? So I reached out to him on Instagram, and I discovered that B-Side is actually Jamie Brevik a trumpet player and actually kind of a music historian who I'd been in contact with once or twice before about the Milwaukee Jazz Vision website that he put together to document the jazz scene in Milwaukee. His most recent record as a trumpet player is called The Jewel, Live at the Dead Poet, and it came out in 2021. It features drummer Matt Wilson and bassist John Tate. But here's the thing that really flipped me out about Jamie Brevik. He doesn't live in Milwaukee. He lives not far from Milwaukee, in Racine, Wisconsin. He graduated from Washington Park High School in Racine. And I only know of one other jazz musician to graduate from Washington Park High. Certainly only one other jazz musician who ended up making a contribution outside of the uh, Racine-Kenosha sphere. And that was my dad. 
Jamie, in fact, is the band director. He's the music teacher at the Prairie School in Racine, which is an incredible facility in a beautiful space with a Frank Lloyd Wright kind of architecture. While I was back home in Wisconsin over the summer, my dad and I took a drive to Racine to reminisce and then to meet Jamie and get to know him a little bit. Here's me and Jamie Brevik at the Prairie School in August talking about it all. The thing that actually brought us together today is not your <laughs> band directing here at this school. Right. It's not your role as a historian of the Milwaukee jazz scene. It's not your trumpet playing. Right. It's not any of that. It's that it seems like over the last couple of years, this graphic designer low-key insinuated himself <laughs> first on Instagram and then on album covers and all over the world into the jazz scene. Mm-hmm. And so many of my favorite artists were posting posters and album mm-hmm. covers that had this kind of similar graphic feel. And it turns out that that's you. <laughs> yeah. And that was when I kind of flipped out about right. it. Right. Because it was like, how is this one guy doing all this? Mm-hmm. And also, what are the chances that it's a dude who went to the same high school that my dad went to in Racine, <laughs> right. Wisconsin. Right. It kind of surprises me sometimes too, like in hindsight, because I'm not a graphic designer by trade. I'm self-taught as far as learning the skill and the craft of design, but it, it's sort of turned into a thing that's was never my intention <laughs> at all. But I guess it's sort of a part of who I am now, definitely, um, in that it's all sort of related to creativity and I've always been even as a kid like before music even it was like art and drawing and painting and things like like that were always like important to me and I'm definitely a huge introvert and like I as a kid especially like was drawing and painting a lot and my dad would bring home like old downbeat magazines when I was in like middle school because he was the janitor at the school at Mitchell where Mm -hmm. I went and he would He's like, nobody's checking these out, so do you want them? So he'd just bring every month, you'd bring the next issue of Downbeat home, and I'm like 12. I would cut out the pictures from Downbeat and like of the musicians I loved and like create this huge giant mural like collage on my bedroom wall of everybody, all the photos. And I do struggle with it a little bit like because people don't realize sometimes that the people I work with as a designer have no idea that I'm a teacher. Like a lot of the people I work with, teaching don't necessarily always know that I'm both a musician and a designer the people I play with musically don't know that I'm a designer and a teacher so I've like these these three facets of my life that definitely intersect as they're all related to music and particularly jazz black American music however I do struggle with a little bit it's like what's my identity I mean it's all me definitely but it's like how do I share that with people sometimes it's a little tricky (laughs) I mean not only the question of identity but I just think about the question of logistics and you have do you have four kids four kids I just don't understand honestly I don't understand I don't understand how you teach all these age groups you put on musicals you know you're the band director you're playing all these gigs I know how fast you are and how responsible you are as a designer because you've done some design work for us right. you know you get it done you're also clearly focused on your family because you chose to be here right. you know and prioritize your family how do you even structure it it's just a very delicate balancing <laughs> act and my wife is a saint yeah and okay. handles a lot of the load with yeah. the family and i'm very very grateful for her and for that and yeah, the family is first like yeah. no doubt like yeah. I'm heading to a birthday party like right after this yeah. a family event, but um, it's it's balance and it's yeah. and it's always like tweaking and like juggling yeah. and performing wise. It's got you know a while back it got to the point where I had to be kind of pretty particular about what 
gigs I took on just mm-hmm. scheduling wise. I, it was hard to commit to a lot of things yeah. performing wise. So I kind of have that under control a little bit because I don't take anything unless it's sort of in my own control as far as rehearsals and things mm-hmm. like this. Like it has to be like fit yeah. within the parameters. But um, design wise, I'm like working on stuff constantly in any like spare downtime I have. I'm working on. And that's just because work. you don't want to say no to it. It's just. No, I mean, I say no to design stuff, too, but I'm just busy. Like the volume, like I'm getting a lot of calls for stuff. It's crazy yeah. how it got to that point. I, I can't really explain it, but and I don't really advertise. It's been a lot of just word of mouth as far as like people coming to me. But Instagram has been helpful. Yeah. You know, having an Instagram account. I've got a lot of contacts through that. Um, but I can point to a few people too, like Marquise Hill was like one of the first people when he was still living in Chicago that hired me to yeah. design things. And but it, it, even before that, it's just I was making posters for myself. Yeah, that's how I started into it, as I wanted to like I, it was fun. Yeah, you know, and I didn't want to necessarily have to pay someone else to do it because I wanted to. Yeah, I had a lot of gigs and I was was just designing the posters for myself, and it gradually turned from that to like friends that ask like hey who made that poster and like oh i did yeah do you want can you make me one yeah sure for free and i was doing it for free and then that turned into like okay well i'm getting a lot of people asking me 20 bucks or something and i was then it gradually like man i need to start charging where i got better at it yeah you know folks like marquise were early people that were hiring me adam larson is another one that hired me a lot at the beginning and then adam recommended me to matt wilson a great drummer and you know one thing leads to another and And then you ended up playing with Matt also yeah. recording with Matt yeah. right? we developed a relationship through design I designed like his last three or four albums yeah and Matt's incredible like yeah. what a, an amazing human and, and inspiring person yeah. musician and teacher and so like I had a gig lined up in New York pre-pandemic again we were yeah. traveling to New York quite a bit and like I was trying to make some inroads out there and I just on a whim I had a date booked and asked him if he would play with me and he like didn't even like question it he was yeah. like yeah I'll be there like let me know and so we, we did a number of them yeah. through the years and then we ended up recording a live record uh, that's on Rope-A-Dope uh-huh. with uh, Matt Wilson on drums and then John Tate on bass who at the time was living in Brooklyn but now he's, he moved back to Chicago Tate was so. there a particular artist that you that approached you or that you worked with when you thought this is, I can't believe this. Like I never thought this Nicholas Payton. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he was one of my musical heroes and not just musical, but like ideological heroes and guideposts and Mm -hmm. like Nicholas is not just of this. I saw just a recent like video of like Christian McBride announcing Nicholas Payton. I think it might've been at Newport from just a few weeks ago. And he just called of all time. Yeah. Like greatest musicians of all time. Yeah. And I would agree. He, I, I don't remember how he, contacted me originally maybe instagram that was just like wow how did i wind up here i have no or ambrose too for that matter i've done a few posters for ambrose as a trumpet player it must be just incredible a couple of my just musical heroes like right there just those two guys for sure and do you tell them where you are um and who you are yeah eventually you know we get to you know like ambrose even i mean i think he had moved back to oakland yeah to have a family, to raise yeah. a family. He has a, a kid, yeah. a, a younger kid. And I mean, we got to, to talking. I was like, yeah, I have four kids. Like, yeah. He was like, what? Yeah. Like, how, how? you know, he was he was so kind and generous. And we ended up talking a little trumpet shop to yeah. Nicholas. Similarly, yeah. like over multiple projects together. Like, you yeah. just like, yeah, I'm in Milwaukee. Yeah. <laughs> yep. in, not even Milwaukee, yeah, Racine, but in Wisconsin. People are a little surprised by that sometimes. Like, just generally, like, 
when they think I'm in New York or something like that because of the type of folks that are hiring yeah. me. But I'm always, I'm always very proud to say, I'm, you know, no, I'm in Wisconsin. Doing, and I'm just a dude. Thing. I mean, I think some people even at first thought maybe you were like a big design shop and that you were stepping on toes and, you know, yes. trying to yes. trying to assert yourself into the yeah. jazz design space yeah. in some kind of dominant way. Yeah, people think it's like a, I've had a number of people that think I'm like a company, like a, like a, like a, I don't know, what, what would you call it, like a design firm or yeah. something. Eh, it's just me and my laptop. Yeah. And which is cool too. Like the element of mystery is sometimes to my advantage, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's wonderful. I mean, yeah. I love that this is where you are. Yeah. You know, for Thank so you. many reasons. But I will say, driving down the country road up to the school, mm. it is almost impossible to fathom that you come up with these kind of urban modern contemporary mm -hmm. that the image mm -hmm. that is starting to represent mm -hmm. a generation of jazz musicians mm -hmm. and jazz adjacent musicians and black yeah. american musicians yeah. is coming out of this right. very non-urban space you right know? i like very much pay attention though to where the music is yeah music and design and art and design yeah and art I think of it like as far as the graphic design thing, being self-taught, it's been a self-study. And over time, initially, it was like I didn't know anything about design or yeah. art. I mean, other than like I was trying to emulate Reed Miles in all the great Blue Note covers. That was the initial entry point. Yeah. The genesis of like my design thing was like oh, I was just trying to copy Reed Miles, yeah. like figuring out, OK, what fonts? is he using to yeah. try to make it look like that and much like my music or anyone's yeah. musical progression or journey is like you like oh man I, i'm trying to sound like freddie hubbard or yeah. clifford brown or something and like learning their solos and yeah. learning their idiosyncrasies and trying to incorporate that into your music I, the, the design and art thing for me has been a very similar journey yeah. and like identifying like oh man i'm really into xyz designer and like what are they doing and how can i try to emulate that and what I'm doing and so it's been a similar process yes. I guess having gone through that in music it wasn't like that much of a reach I guess to try to do the same thing with art I still feel like I'm kind of new and an outsider yes in the design world yeah. in, in a way but I've I found it like a very similar process I totally yeah. understand and yeah. and I think similarly the process involves first copying what you love mm -hmm. and then developing style Right. That isn't just a facsimile of yes. the thing that you love. Right. And still managing to show your, you know, your influences yes. and, and not be afraid of revealing who you are by what you love. Right. And I see that in your design and I know that you do it in your music too. I mean, I think that they are very tied in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I think there's a bit of uh, element of because it's not New York or mm -hmm. LA or Chicago or something, there is the freedom to experiment and explore without a lot of outside pressure. Also having a teaching job yeah. allows me the freedom to be picky and choosy about what I spend my time and to, to make a living with at least. It's provided some stability financially to be able to do that. I think if I was just a musician, like and I wasn't a teacher and a, and a designer, I'd be hustling as much as possible to try to play and, and make money that way. Similarly, as a designer, if I was just a designer, I wouldn't have the, the flexibility to, to try to do anything other than just that. Yeah. The three aspects, the yes. teaching, the, the performing, and the designing all support each other, and that they're also sort of in the same realm, and that mm -hmm. music is the center. Yeah. So the three things are supporting each other, but it, 
you know, I wonder if anybody listening to you talk who is only focused on trying to play the trumpet or be a graphic designer or a teacher would be listening to this and think, well, what is, is that what is expected of us now? And, the, you know, is, is that what's required of us in order to make a living or even just kind of be present and make a contribution? Because we know and we've even listed a, a handful of musicians today who are very focused on one aspect right. of what you're doing right. and, they're, and they're devoted to that one mm -hmm. thing. But I do think that there is a little bit of truth to what oh, you're speaking, sure. which is like the job description has expanded yes. exponentially yes. in the last you know generation. Absolutely. I, I see that as being almost necessary. Yeah. If you're a musician coming up now, you have to understand marketing and business. And I know plenty of musicians who are very good designers. I can't seem to focus and you Speaking of Wisconsin-related conversations, not long ago I talked to singer Aubrey Johnson and my friend pianist Randy Ingram about their duo record, Play Favorites. Aubrey grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, but she's made a name for herself in New York as a singer, composer, and a teacher. She was mentored by her uncle, the late Lyle Mays, who was a celebrated pianist, composer, and member of the Pat Metheny Group. And Randy is just one of my favorite piano players. He's also a composer, an educator, and a producer, too. Play Favorites is both expansive and contained. It's intentional, and I think it's inspired, too. Ingram and Johnson each find themselves within the context of the other. I've changed my plans. Aubrey's an extremely accomplished singer. She's technical, but also expressive. And Randy is the perfect partner for her. He's a sensitive but unrestrained accompanist, and his harmonic framing of these songs pushes this music forward. Here we are talking about it recently Can't in Brooklyn. To meet her and I'm in love. Randy Ingram, Aubrey Johnson. Hello. Hi, Leo. The dynamic duo. So thinking about your project, the record opens with a version of the Billie Eilish song, My Future. And I think that speaks to an ongoing conversation about the role of contemporary repertoire in an improvised space. You're clearly very thoughtful about the tunes that you're bringing in. You're doing some Brazilian tunes, some more traditional standards like Born to be Blue. You do a song by your uncle, the late, great Lyle Mays. So to make a decision to open the project with a Billie Eilish song, it it's a statement. Aubrey, how did you first hear that song? Yeah, I, I was teaching during the pandemic this online course for high school students through Berkeley, and um, it was about personal style and one of the students brought in that tune and I had never heard it and I was like what is this song I love these lyrics like there's it's so fresh and different because it's a a song about self-love instead of a, like a romantic love story and I just there's so few songs about that so the lyric really spoke to me and I just felt very attracted to it from the beginning and then I guess it was like over a year later that we were discussing like what could we bring into this that's a little bit different that was like mm -hmm. you know taking the music forward by using contemporary repertoire, like you said, and then I thought of that song. It makes me think about how when you perform material that has been performed by some of the great practitioners of the music before you, on the one hand, you feel that you're always kind of in the shadow of what came before. And on the other hand, you get to be in conversation with all that came before. When you bring a song, on the other hand, like My Future by Billie Eilish into your repertoire, you're kind of starting fresh. There isn't that legacy, that long and ongoing 
conversation around this tune. There, there's no real precedent for how to cover it. So you have maybe even more of a sense of responsibility or the question is more open. How, sure. what are we going to do and, with this? Uh, you know, and I, again, this is just sort of from my perspective, but it's easy to be really sort of dismissive of like, oh, you're, you're doing some esoteric jazz reharmonizations. But at the same time, if you are a jazz pianist, these are your sounds. These yeah. are this is this is your identity. So I think sort of believing in that identity and 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 going for it is is the key. And Aubrey, what about the lyric? You know, you said that when you heard that song, you responded to the lyric. It was fresh. You liked it. It was a love song about a person's potential. But I often wonder what it's like for a singer, especially a singer who's singing primarily songs that they haven't written. How do you get in touch with the message of the song? What is the process like of figuring out? how to embody lyrics and choosing repertoire that you can really relate to. Ideally, it's something that the singer picks. You know, yeah. it's a different story if it's not something I picked and I have to figure that out. But if it's something I picked, usually because it speaks to me in some way, sometimes it's something where I can channel my own story. And sometimes it's something where I'm channeling someone else's story that either I know or somebody that I made up. That's how I, I talk to my students too. Like, you know, whatever it is, uh, find something in it that you can tell and it doesn't have to be yours it can be yours it doesn't matter necessarily if you feel it deeply but if you can project a feeling onto a listener and help them facilitate their experience of it then that's actually what matters aubrey where did you grow up uh wisconsin where green bay you're from wisconsin too right yeah i'm from madison you grew up in green bay how did you discover jazz start singing jazz through really through my uncle Lyle Mays um, of the Pat Metheny group, I grew up with just that being reality, like going to his concerts. That my uncle was a performing, touring jazz musician, and but my honestly my parents didn't have much jazz around besides Pat Metheny group and Bobby McFerrin. So I was listening to that a lot. So they had his music basically, and they love music. They're very educated, but I wasn't like listening to Ella or Sarah Vaughan growing up, but. Thankfully, my mom put me in jazz piano lessons when I was like 13, just like, you know, maybe you'll like this. And I was like, okay. So it was just kind of something that, that happened. I was already really, really into music and singing, but the jazz part was kind of a family legacy. I feel lucky for that, but I really have always been into all different styles, and I studied some opera in college, so it feels very holistic for me. I just love singing. What was your relationship like with your uncle, with Lyle? Well, we didn't really get close until I was in college, when I was growing up, that was like the Pat Metheny group's heyday, so he, I really didn't see him very much. Um, he was always super nice, and I don't think he realized how serious I was about music until my mom said, oh, Aubrey's in college for vocal jazz. And then, and then he, I remember he called me up in my dorm room, started asking me about like, hey, like, what, what are you doing? Like, um, and then that led to like, you know, a, I guess like a 13-year mentorship friendship where we would communicate really often, send me lots of emails and phone calls and try to guide me through the ways of the music world and stuff. What kind of guidance would he give you? Well, mostly like musical, compositional, conceptual, just talking about the differences in the way that he and the Pat Metheny group would think about recording and performing, like the differences between that and then how like most jazz musicians do things. Because they would do things much more they would plan things out much more clearly and, you know, go for a much more pristine, rehearsed, edited sound in the studio and like all of that. I talked to Antonio Sanchez recently about working with Pat Metheny and how that experience has influenced his approach to being a band leader himself. And he said that Pat is very specific 
And in fact, when they start to rehearse, they could play maybe eight bars and Pat will stop the band and start to give some notes about what he has in mind that he really is highly particular and that over the years, Antonio has learned to borrow some of that approach, but also has tried to let it breathe a little more before he interjects his commentaries. What you're describing kind of reinforces that same idea that Pat is very specific and maybe Lyle was also. Oh, yeah. Maybe even more <laughs> than really? Pat. Lyle considered himself like um, almost more of like a classical, mi- classically minded composer yes. and musician, even though he could improvise literally anything. You know, it wasn't because of any limitations, but he just loved curating every moment. And did that influence the way you approach putting music together also? Yeah, definitely. But like Antonio, I try to like, you know, bring in both <laughs> sensibilities. Yeah. And that's actually something really cool about this project, because, you know, when you're in a duo setting, you you can't really do that. I mean, you can, but then is it really jazz anymore? Right. Um, it's hard to say. But with my own sextet project, that that influence is very prevalent. But yeah, that's, that was a fun thing about doing this duo with Randy is seeing the value in not deciding what every moment's going to be like and collaborating with somebody else, someone else else's musical mind and sensibility and making something together that is a little bit freer. And um, that was has been really great for me as a singer, having done a lot of things that are very prescribed. Randy, did you carry any of that weight into the project, knowing that Aubrey had worked so much with Lyle and that she was so influenced by him? I mean, sure. And, and obviously, I've always been a huge fan of Lyle's music and his playing. And, and um, we worked, or, or at least I worked, really hard trying to get to a place. You know, we do one of Lyle's tunes on the record. And I felt a lot of responsibility there and felt like I, I really needed to honor what he was all about musically. So spent a lot of time listening to his stuff. I found some live bootleg recordings of this piece that we do. And, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that strikes me so much about him as a musician is is there's so much logic and there's so much, just like Aubrey said, intention and thought. And yet when he goes to improvise, it's so in the moment. And, it, and it's like he really recognizes the need to have both sides present, you know, and it, and it really makes the music awesome. In improvised situations, it's taken me a long time to really accept this and really just be cool with it, but if I have sort of any particular agenda of what's what I want to do as an improviser, it's not going to happen, mm-hmm. and I'm, and I'm going to be really disappointed. So just trying to be in the moment and just try and try and feel and just let whatever comes out come out. But I think you can do that and then also have you know other, other areas of the music that have a lot of framework and, yes. and structure. I mean, that's why I, I love these conversations, because I think they ultimately are conversations about li- how to live your life. Mm-hmm. Like, attachment to the outcome is, you know, a recipe for disappointment. Right, right. And yet, playing with that kind of intention and having some kind of craft is so crucial. So it's like wa- constantly walking that edge. When you talk to your students on top of technique and all the other things, I mean, do they ever ask about how set up a career in, in music and as a singer? Or as a piano player? They probably should ask more often, um, but sometimes, yeah, and it's a hard question to answer. <laughs> you kind of, I feel like you have to be open to doing a lot more than just that one thing that you like the best. Well, that's why I, I wonder about, like, particularly working with singers, at a certain point, this is your competition, <laughs> right? I mean, you, My students. You, you're facilitating <laughs> yeah. the development of people who ultimately are going to be looking for the same gigs that you're looking for. And that's the goal for them to be that yeah. successful. And I, I actually do have some former students that are doing amazing things. Yeah, You have to really deal with your ego in that, you know? But I was inspired initially by, like, studying with Dominique Eade at NEC. Mm-hmm. 
um, and her student Luciana Souza, mm-hmm. you know, is out there and has a probably has a bigger name, even though Dominique's equally incredible. Yeah. Just watching that and trying to like that's also being part of the lineage, you know. Yes. Yeah. Like you pass along what you do with the most excellence you can and hope that the person you're working with is going to be right alongside you. Yes. Randy, you talk about how teaching a jazz history course has actually influenced your own concept of where you fit. Yeah, definitely. And the work that you make. You know, when I started teaching, the first thing I realized as I was prepping for the class is, wow, I don't know any of this stuff. You know, this is just the the realization of how much stuff I don't know. Um, And then so filling in the gaps and especially filling in early early gaps and really sort of getting a, a timeline and, and I guess somewhat of a narrative to teach. It's been interesting. And I think it puts things like the Billie Eilish song in perspective, right? I mean, Billie Holiday records this year's Kisses. That's a new song. That creates almost more of a, a need or a prerogative to bring in contemporary songs right now, you know, because the thing that we don't want to get is is obviously the great American songbook or whatever you want to call it. It's incredible music, but we don't want to get to a place where there's absolutely zero cultural reference for it anymore. I think as soon as, not to be fatalistic, but as soon as we don't have like Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett performing anymore, like that's sort of the last popular culture sort of benchmark for for some of that repertoire, I think. There it was, my friends. The Ones That Got Away Holiday Edition 2022. Thanks to Bill McHenry, Dee Dee Gutmann, John Dryden, Dan Tepfer, Jamie Brevik, Randy Ingram, and Aubrey Johnson for talking it down with me. And thanks to you, yes you, for coming along for the ride. The third story is written, produced, hosted, and edited by Melio Sidrin, along with technical help from my engineer, Hector Colon. Thanks, Hector. You're welcome. And happy holidays. Same to you. I'm going to let my dad take us home. This is the track Swing State off of his album by the same name. It was released earlier this year. I produced it and I played drums on it. Jamie Brevik designed the tour posters. He also designed the album cover for my next record, What's Trending, that comes out March 10th. I'll be back again in your headspace before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.